All right, so that's our, our subject this morning on a last-minute call. Our subject this morning, if you came here looking for some perspicuity, that's going to be next week due to the class manager losing track of what week it was. Uh, so we're going to talk about interpretation of Scripture this morning. Um, <clears throat> now, uh, to, yeah, I, li I wasn't here last week, but I listened to the... Who all was here last week? Who's here this morning? Lots of you? Yeah, okay. So, uh, last week, Dave was up here and talked about the central message of the Bible. The central message of the Bible. Um, and uh, so, a couple of questions just picking up on that. Uh, what do we mean by a message? What is a message? Something that holds information. Something that holds information. All right. Any other thoughts about what is a message? A message holds information, right? Yes. It's for, for someone. For someone. And it has an author with who has intent behind the message. From someone who meant to share that information with whoever they sent the message to. Right. So a message is a is a uh, intended transfer of information. And, uh, <clears throat> I mean, you could have a message that doesn't get sent, or a message that you don't know who's going to see it, a message in a bottle. But, uh, generally speaking, we got an author, and a thought, and an intended receiver. Um, okay, message. And... Um, That the sender wants the receiver to understand, which kind of goes almost back to our first or second lesson in this series where we were talking about words or the meaning of words. So messages are made up of words, written messages are made up of words, or spoken messages made up of words that, uh, you know, we're putting together in order to, to make that information and send it. Uh, so... Uh, now, here's, a, here's the first hard question of the morning. What were the four aspects of the central message of the Bible? There were four aspects of the God, central... redemption, faith, life. God, redemption, faith, and life. Does that sound, sound good? Those are one-word summaries. Right, one word summaries, who is God? You know, what's God's character? Uh, instruction for us, uh, God's law, God's wisdom, uh, imperatives, uh, advice are in there. Uh, the, uh, I, I, uh, how God has been doing his plan of redemption. So kind of the his, the history, like the plan and sort of how it worked out. A lot of a lot of the Old Testament is little close calls with the plan, where the plan was in, in danger, and uh, you know we see God intervene to keep the plan going, and uh, uh, we see uh, and then the, the the provision of Christ, uh, faith, provision of Christ, uh, the gospel. Four aspects of the central message of the Bible. Well, now originally that that lesson was going to be after this lesson, but 
do to I'm gonna now I'm gonna chalk up the scrambling of the order as divine intervention. <laughs> uh, divine intervention. So uh, actually, as we talk about interpretation, this central message is helpful, uh, and and it, uh, to interpretation, we'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, sort of knowing this, knowing or being aware of the central messages helps us. Uh, correctly interpret the, the little passages and bits that we might be studying because um, we can assume that they fit into one of these central themes, right? It must fit into one of them or it wouldn't be in the Bible. Those are the central messages. So, um, yeah, the word context. So you open up interpretation, you know, the first word you see, if you're gonna, you open up a book or a chapter of a book about interpretation, context, context, and uh, because words, like we talked about way back, what they particularly mean depends a lot on the context, and so maybe uh, we'll revisit context. So let's look at Second Timothy two fifteen to get started here. Second Timothy two fifteen. Uh, who can who can read that for us? Raise your hand when you're ready. Be a reader. It's a famous verse. Do your best to present yourself yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, and who correctly handles the word of truth. All right. A worker, rightly handling the word of truth. Now, this was written from, you know, like one pastor to another, right, Timothy? Speaking of context, so we're talking about understanding Scripture and teaching it correctly, right? So, uh, what, I, what we want to notice here is that it's um, called work. And, and Timothy is being encouraged to do his best which makes me think of effort and something that is probably not easy to get right every time. Right, so it's going to take some work to rightly handle the word of truth. And, uh, and then there's another one I thought we should look at, 2 Peter 3, 15 through 17. First you have to find 2 Peter. Three, fifteen through 17. You got that. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. Well, that was a pretty interesting little piece of advice from Peter there about understanding scripture and interpreting it correctly. And that it's not easy. I mean, he's criticizing Paul for writing confusing and for lacking perspicuity. <laughs> lacking, lacking, yeah. Okay, so uh, 
so so it's not easy to understand. Some parts are, some parts aren't. Uh, Peter seems to imply here, but then he puts a like it's it's it turns into like a warning, right? Because it's uh, he says um, he says uh, that the parts that are hard to understand, uh, the ignorant and unstable twist twist. As they do the other scriptures, like this is a thing widely, you know, Paul knows this to be widely going on, where people are twisting the scriptures, and it's it causes destruction. Eventually, the destruction of the people that do it to their own destruction. Uh, but he talks about be careful that you're not carried away by the error of these lawless people and lose your own stability. Oh wow. Yeah, so correct understanding of the scripture, this correct handling, is is uh, is really important for us. And uh, that stability, I, I thought it was interesting, this word stability, because you know that's kind of I'm thinking of, you know, sort of sects and oddball little religions that get started, and it's it's because somebody says, hey, 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 that's not, hey. That's not what this passage of Scripture actually means. Now, I know we've been saying that since the 4th century. But, I, you know, to me, it means such and such that's different, and we're going to build a church around that. And it's a, somehow it's appealing, and off it goes. Okay, so you can end up being a Christian scientist or whatever. Um, and, and, and so that this uh, <clears throat> interpretation, it's not easy, but it's really important to get it right. Uh, calls for us to become workmen. Uh, now, so let's think about that for a second. Workmen. We've, we've had some workmen in our house for the past few months. Neighbors were asking us if these painters had moved in. Because <laughs> their van was there every morning. And... Because uh, they were so slow. They were very slow. Okay. Good. They were very good. They were very slow. And, uh, you know, when I paint something, I read the instructions on the can, and it says, prepare the surface. <laughs> you know, sand the existing paint, clean that with a certain solvent. This is very important. <clears throat> I don't look at that. No, that's too much trouble. Let's just see if we can just paint right over it. <laughs> Which I did recently in, in a closet upstairs, and uh, then after the paint dried, I accidentally I was like putting something back in the closet, and it touched my coat of paint, and it just came right off. It was like workmanship. That was not workmanship there. So, uh, so what does it take? I mean, these painters would—they didn't even. Did they use drop cloths? I mean, they were. They, they would get, you know, they would paint with and get it exactly right like the first time. <laughs> and then if they didn't like something, they'd do it over again. Um, <clears throat> and they really, ended, they didn't say it out loud, but I think they were cursing whoever put in that drywall originally. Because <laughs> they didn't want to be responsible for all those flaws, so they had to fix them all. So what does it take to become a workman? What does it take to become really good at a job or at your job, what's it take? Practice. 
Practice. Repetition. Repetition. Studying. Study. Sincere. Sincerity. Mm -hmm. To get really good at your job. Say a little more, Raj. Sincerity. Well, that's the one I lack, so. That's Wow, now I'm going to, no. so they say that sincerity is really a key to a lot of success. So exactly. if you can learn to fake that, you've got it made. Yeah. Maybe coupled with sincerity, if you're talking about handling the word, then there's also got to be a belief in what you're saying and doing. A belief in what you're saying or doing. So you've got to have, you got to, so you got to kind of believe, I think, that what you're doing is kind of important. And theological right? knowledge is great, but if you don't have faith, to begin with, uh, it's just theological knowledge. Without... The, uh, theological knowledge. So you, you do kind of have to have a correct understanding of why it's important. Yeah. So as a workman, what did, now let's see. How are we doing on my, okay. Uh, I thought of a couple other things uh, beyond these ones we've mentioned. Uh, sometimes uh, you, you might do an apprenticeship under an experienced um, doer of the same kind of work. So you, you kind of try to learn, besides just being taught how to do it, you would actually go practice doing it with an experienced practitioner um, to get good at it. I think another thing that I noticed in the, the, is the tools. Like these painters, we would say, well, we want a certain color. And they say, well, that's great. We're going to pick the paint, the brand, the kind. Because they had, and they, uh, their, their brushes are like their number one thing. Because they, they want a certain kind of paint and a certain kind of brush. Because then they can just like, you know, and it flows just the way they expect it. And they don't have to learn a new kind of paint. And so they wanted the right tools. Um, and, and practicing with the same tools, they get better results. So we got tools, we got, this, we got learning how to do it, <clears throat> experience, practice. So what, let's talk about tools for interpretation. We'll, talk, we'll call them tools. I think our author called them rules. Uh, so you could call them rules as well. Rules or tools for interpretation that'll help us get it right more often, improve, improve our chances of, of getting it right, not having a do-over, having been corrected by our more experienced teacher, whatever. The, what, are the, what are the best tools to think about in terms of doing interpretation of Scripture? So um, <clears throat> the, the, the first one, and this kind of goes with context, okay? So... But they call the tool interpret interpret the interpret scripture literally in context. So literally in context. So what's the word literally mean? Some there's some jokes going around about the word literally. There's memes. What's the word literally mean? You assume that what it's saying verbatim is what it means, basically. Like the obvious meaning, the apparent meaning. Mm -hmm. Is probably the meaning, yeah. right? The simplest answer is probably the correct answer. Okay, so that's the that's the that's kind of a summary of this. Interpret things literally as, come on, use your head. 
Okay. Most likely they said what they meant to say. Okay. And they weren't trying to be tricky. If you're sending a message, you don't like make it difficult to understand if you don't have to, right? Mm -hmm. Now it could be when God's trying to talk to us that there's some concepts he's like, well, they just aren't going to get that. But here's a way I could describe it. And some, some of our scripture authors were really stumped on how to describe stuff. You can read Revelation or Ezekiel and they're just stumped. And they're just doing the best they can. <clears throat> okay. So, but literally, <clears throat> another way that I, I thought was uh, a way of thinking about this, literally in context, is kind of like the way we study literature, which is the same word, right? Like literature. You respect the author. You're, you're, trying, to, you're trying to determine the author's intent and that helps you understand what they wrote, right? And so if you're, so different kinds of literature, which uh, our guy called genres are in, in the Bible, and there's a bunch of different genres in the Bible, right? Kinds of language. And so you've got, like we just mentioned, this uh, apocalyptic language, like in Revelation or Ezekiel, where you, you, you know, we're going to be a little bit stuck on how, I mean, you can't just take word for word. In fact, even the author says it was like this. It was like this. And it was like it. It was like an eagle and it had four eyes. And he describes stuff that's like physically impossible. Mm -hmm. So we know, well, we can't just start drawing. We taught a class on Ezekiel a long time ago and we put up slides of all the different drawings, some different drawings people had made trying to show what Ezekiel, like to draw what Ezekiel was describing, the, the, uh, the wheel of eyes and stuff like that. So what do we got? We've got um, history, just it's narrative history. Then they went here, then they went there, then this happened. <coughs> narrative history, we've got... Uh, so we can interpret it pretty literally, right? I mean, we can just say, well, this is just... Describing what happened, so no problemo. We don't have to think about hidden meanings in here. Okay. So, uh, law, proverbs. Proverbs are weird, right? Uh, in Proverbs, I don't have one ready to read. Forgot to do that. They'll have things like, there are three things that really make your wife mad. No, four. <laughs> <laughs> And you're like, well, so you, you can't do that literally, because now which is it? Is it three or four? Well, no, that's just like a proverb trick, mm -hmm. right? That's just a way to write proverbs to help emphasize what you're talking about. And it's really only one or two. <laughs> Lucky for me. So um, there's parables. So we get into that, parables, right? All of a sudden, things are going along in the narrative, and Jesus says, well, I'm going to say a parable. And uh, the, a lot of times, the gospel writers, like, flag that for you, so you just, you don't miss that all of a sudden, you know, he's just, this is a parable, not like a true story. Uh, and so we have to shift how we interpret it. And, and what's funny about parables was they were designed to be kind of hard to understand. Right, like there was a there was an apparent meaning, and Jesus said, "Yeah, here we, let me tell you the fuller meaning of that." So the people could follow the story; it was an interesting story. But for the hearer, 
there was more meaning to it. You could do, you could interpret it better. Okay, if you had faith. So, um, what's some other apostolic correspondence? The letters, right? Paul's letters. So what you know, context of letters? Oh, you know, hey, who wrote it? Who were they writing? Now you're talking about messages, right? You're talking about a really obvious kind of message. It was written as a message. So now, what, who wrote it? Who were they writing it to? Why were they writing it? What were the circumstances? What were the, what was the, you know, we learn a lot when we go to study letters and get their meaning right of, say, the, of the Paul's letters by backing up and thinking, well, what was going on in Ephesus? You know, by studying the history, we can find other places. And now we can get a lot better understanding of what Paul was talking about when, and why he was saying certain things, right? So, uh, so context. You got words. You got sentence. Words are like context is like a, a nested thing, right? So you've got a certain word. Sometimes we'll be like, "What now? What does that word mean in this context?" And we start, we naturally already look at it in its in like the phrase or the sentence, and that gets us started. A lot of times, then we're maybe we look at uh, the paragraph. In, you know, English paragraphs are supposed to have a point, so we try to look at it in the context of the paragraph. But then we're back to, well, wait a minute, what, what the book that it's in. What's the book about? Who was the writer? And we start zooming it all out. And finally, we end up at the central messages of the Bible. Like, how does it fit into that? And does that all line up? And that'll help us get that meaning correctly. Meaning to get it right. Uh, there's, uh, we often use this description versus prescription, where something is described. And then people take that as like something we should all do, and it's not. It's not. It was. It was a description, not a prescription of like something we should all do. Something that somebody did once, but there's no indication that we should be doing the same thing. Okay. And uh, so, um, can we demonstrate our faith by maybe sacrificing one of our children? Because we think God told us to do that. No. no. Uh, <clears throat> Abraham demonstrated faith by doing that, but that that does that doesn't mean we're supposed to do that. So we have to keep that straight. That's kind of an easy one. But uh, uh, are we looking at something? You know, and the, what tells us what? How do we know that again? Context helps us get that correctly. Literally, literally, was there really an Adam? Now, literalist literalism gets used to kind of to kind of try to take the Bible down, right? I can't believe y'all believe that stuff literally. I mean, there was an Adam, and everybody knows that can't be true. And how about the talking snake? <laughs> okay, there's an Adam and an Eve, like a first person, like a full-grown person, that's how it started, and a talking snake, and you, now you want me to sign up? <laughs> <laughs> but we do think that there was literally an Adam, and literally a thief, and that there was literally a talking snake, <laughs> and a talking donkey. Talking donkey. Oh, yeah. 
Seth, they're the only two talking animals, aren't they? Unless you count all the stuff in Revelation with the beasts. The beasts. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so, yes. So, but a lot of people would say, well, look, 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 because of other things we believe, we don't want to interpret Genesis 1, literally, because of other things we would like to fold in and, and also believe. So we are forced to deliteralize and interpret Genesis as an allegory or something that is not. It's history, not allegory. But we can we we can do anything we want if we're willing to say, oh, it's allegory. Yeah. Okay. So this so this interpreting things correctly in their context is really important. Uh, all right. <clears throat> Talking snake, except then the curse. Somehow the the snake was not limited to crawling on the ground whatever kind of snake this was, whatever kind of serpent it was. So it was a serpent. But somehow it wasn't limited to crawling on the ground. We don't know. So there are things we don't know, right? So we've been, we've, we've uh, talked a lot about the inerrancy of scripture. Uh, so we could say that the scripture is inerrant, but our understanding of it is not. So we, we as, as much as we work to get it correctly, we do run up on stuff that is just not in there, so we just can't conclude, right? Or there's alternate explanations, and we'll probably pick our favorite, but we can't, we can't say that, you know, we can defend our favorite maybe a little bit, but we cannot say that's it. There's other, there's other legitimate interpretations of some things, right? So that bring actually that brings us to this point number two, uh, rule number two, or go faster. Okay, so um, scripture must interpret itself. You use scripture to interpret scripture. The scripture is God's word, so we could you know it's 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 consistent. It ha- it's it's consistent, and so. Uh, we can use, and we often do, we often have, it's been critical actually, to use some of the scripture in the New Testament to better understand scripture in the Old Testament. I mean, one of the big problems when Jesus walked the earth was misunderstanding of the Old Testament with respect to the Messiah, right? There was a lot of, okay, you've been reading it that way, but what if you read it this way? Same words, okay, and then, and, and people would go, that the, you know would go oh and believe because now they saw that this 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 Jesus was uh, prophesied in the Old Testament as is like that he would be crucified. So um, what do other portions of Scripture indicate about the portion we're studying? The the ex- a big example of this is Romans. Like Luther would say, if you you know. Romans, if you read Romans, really help you understand a lot of the rest of the Bible. Mm-hmm. Hebrews is, is a book we go to that really helps us understand the Old Testament better, right? So that we, we can use other parts of the Bible uh, to help us understand what the part we're studying. Uh, I mean, uh, sometimes the prophets wrote 
we talked about human authorship for a couple of weeks. Prophets wrote stuff they didn't know what it meant. It's a message from God. They would say, the passage would start with, God told me to tell you the following. And they would write, and it was just written out. And, you know, it was understood as best they could, and we find out later what it really meant. And uh, so, uh, so, yeah, we have the advantage of more scripture. Uh, we can also, and we do this all the time, uh, look at a word and then use a concordance to figure out other ways that same word has been used to try and narrow down like what it might mean in this context. Uh, now we can overdo that, right? Like there's, you can use the same word uh, and it doesn't mean the same thing. So then we're back to context, like the word flesh gets used. Christ became flesh, but he did not have a fleshly nature, like our flesh wars against our spirit. And so we go, okay, we got two, it's the same word, but it has two different meanings in the original language, two different intentions by the author. So we got to stay on top of that. Uh, rule number three, speeding up. Uh, non-contradiction. Now we kind of already touched on this a little bit, but since the whole Bible is true, right, then not, none of it makes some other part of it not true. And this has been one of the trickiest things for people over time is apparent contradiction. So apparent contradiction, uh, but our rule says, well, we cannot conclude that one of these passages is the true and correct one and the other one is not, because that, that can't be true. And so, well, then it's up to us to see if we can reconcile it and dig around and reconcile it. I watched a video of the author of our book giving a talk at like the Reformation Conference or someplace <laughs> about interpreting scripture. And uh, he took time there to name four or five like famous contradictions. And then what, how you, how, you know, how they've been reconciled by people really looking at it. Okay, so, oh, now some of them are easy, like James, you're saved by works. Everybody else, you're saved by faith. What's the reconciliation? Context again, all right. Antinomianism versus uh, legalism. Uh, and so th there is a, uh, uh, <clears throat> and then there he named one passage that no one knows what it means. <laughs> no one knows what it means. There are five popular theories about what it means that are plausible, and so we all just have to admit, sorry, we don't know exactly what that one means. It's the part about where when Jesus preaching to the prisoners, I forget where it's located, and we, we just don't know exactly what that means. All right, so, um, but we can't conclude that because of apparent contradiction, this part must be wrong or not true, and uh, this other part is what we're going with. Somehow, it's on us to see uh, if we can, how they are how they are compatible or reconciled. Finally, tool number four. We couldn't have a class if we didn't read from a confession, so I'm going to read from the Westminster Confession. No, I'm not just going to refer to it. Westminster Confession says the meaning of Scripture is not manifold but one. Okay, not manifold but one. Love the word manifold. 
2 Peter 1.20. Let's look at that. Ooh, we're almost right there already. 2 Peter 1.20. I'll just read this one. Knowing, well, I'm going to back up to 19. We have something more sure. Oh, more sure. Now i got to back up. So, 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths, and we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice, very voice, born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Who's talking about? What's he talking about? Transfiguration. Transfiguration. Peter was at the transfiguration. And then he says in verse 19, and we have something more sure. More sure than being on the Mount of Transfiguration? Pretty convincing. But he says, more sure, the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp, as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns. And the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, this is what we're trying to do. First of all, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So this has been one of our theme verses almost. So he's saying, basically, God meant something specific when he said this stuff. So... No prophecy, okay? So the, the truth that God wants us to know does not come from someone's own interpretation. So this is this gets at this business of there's one... That, now, I didn't realize this. I learned this to get ready today, but why is this man, you know, to, to, maybe that seems a little obvious. Why is there, a, why is it mentioned in the Westminster Confession and other confessions that scripture's meaning is not manifold, but one? Well, it's because in the medieval times, when they were having the Reformation, one of the popular things that was going on was, oh no, any, any scripture has four meanings. Ha ha, come to seminary and learn that, read a scripture there's a literal meaning. It's, scripture's awesome. It's got a literal meaning. Then it's got a, what do they have? They call it. It's got a moral meaning. It's got a allegorical meaning. And it's got an analogical meaning. Whee! So if you really know your stuff, you got to know four meanings for every bit of scripture. And uh, they weren't spending a lot of time on cooking up the four meanings. And cooking it up is a good that's all they were doing right they're forcing this on this reading stuff into the text on a grand scale to the basically forget the text this is way more fun this is way way more interesting and if you can follow this along you must be smarter than the average guy it was all about just making stuff up that sounded plausible okay and it was kind of cool and so it's very popular and so the our confession writers are going, stop that. One meaning. Peter says it. It's not about what you cook up. It's about whatever God meant by this, what he said here. Okay, so 
This uh, one meaning thing, give you a quick example, even though we're almost out of time. Jerusalem. Jerusalem could mean, the word Jerusalem, when it appears, it had four meanings. The four meanings were the city itself. Sometimes it just means the city itself. That's what almost always means. There's a new Jerusalem, differently. Okay, so Jerusalem, the city itself, the soul of a man, the church, and heaven. So you got to see the word Jerusalem. You got to think about what's this mean? If Jerusalem's the city itself, okay, that's boring. Uh, what what would the moral meaning be? And you get all off into this. Okay, so that's that's what they were after. They had, this had gone. You know, it was all about hey, superior knowledge to see all these hidden meanings. And uh, oftentimes, you know, what the thing was actually about, totally lost, not interesting. So um, now, we don't do that anymore, do we? <laughs> yeah, we do. Yes, we do. We do do it. You're right. I saw a lot of nodding heads. You went, oh, yes, we do. Um, it's, it's not, maybe it's not so fancy, and we, uh, but it's, it's, this is bad a practice, and you hear it. We've talked about it a little bit before in this class. You have your truth, I have mine. We're looking at the Bible, and we're saying, well, we say things like, uh, I like to think this verse means such and such. I like to think it. I like to think that's what it means. That's like a, a alarm bell should go off. You like to think that's what this means. <laughs> that's the same thing. Okay, that's the same thing as saying Jerusalem represents the soul of a man. Okay, it's just reading stuff into the text. It's reading typically our own preferences or other beliefs that we want to carry along into the text and try to reconcile the text, the truth of the Bible with stuff that's not true. Trying to rec reconcile stuff, truth with stuff that's not true. So we've got to c come up with some other truth from the Bible. Okay, so. Um, or, and this is a popular one, I'm sure I've done this one, if not all of these, um, def defining a particular application to a verse or a passage, like saying, beyond what it means, this also indicates a certain application is, a, is, a, is being taught here. Okay. And uh, since we're always looking for application, we're going to talk about application, it's week after next. Yeah. We're going to talk about application. But uh, uh, but the applications very often are not usually not written in to the to the to the scripture. Okay, it's a separate. It's a way. Then we'll talk about that later. So we're running out of time. So, uh, but you know the problem with uh, defining applications from a passage of scripture is, you know, so, uh, some teacher. Would come along and get that, get an idea, and preach that as that's the, that's what this this passage is teaching us. We must do, and another preacher read the same passage, and uh, hmm, I think what that's telling us is th th something else. Well, which is it? So we're back to this. We're back to this. Uh, no, there must be only God only meant one thing. Okay, and if it was an application, it's it, we, it's whatever he meant. Not something that we can read into the text. Now, if a text reminds us of another truth or reminds us of an application, then okay, we'll talk about that in application. But that's, 
that's a reminding, that's not what that passage is meaning. It has its original meaning and only that. So, um, okay. Now, there were only four rules in, uh, in, uh, in our author's little, little short book, but I'm going to add a fifth rule, uh, which actually he does mention. He just doesn't call it one of his rules. And that is, uh, in, in, in understanding Scripture, this might be actually should be rule number one. Uh, let's look up 2 Corinthians 4, 6. It might end on times. Corinthians 4, 6. Who's got that? I've got it. Okay. For God, who said, let light shine out of, dar- out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So who gives us our understanding of Scripture? Who ultimately enables us to understand Scripture? Holy Holy Spirit. Give us, we're being given the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. And uh, John 16, 13 through 14. I'll read that one. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. This is the Holy Spirit. And uh, by the way, Jesus is speaking to the apostles or the disciples, I should say, in here. And uh, some of what he's referring to, we think, is the scriptures that they would write. They were this, right? At that point in the game, none of the New Testament had been written down yet. So um, that's also about the inspiration of scripture. But we have the Holy Spirit, and he will guide us into all truth. All right? And then finally, James 1, 5, Find James. There it is. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. So, in understanding Scripture, probably I would say rule number one is to ask for wisdom, ask for God's help in understanding what we're trying to understand in Scripture. He wrote it. He's been given to us the Holy Spirit to help us understand uh, God. And so we can pray and uh, before, during, and after working to understand the scriptures that he would help us do that. That He would help us get it. And uh, um, we know without him, I mean, if we get it at all, whether we prayed or not, it's him. But we know if we ask for anything that's in his will, he will give it to us. And is our understanding of scripture in his will? Yeah. So that's a pretty safe and good thing to ask for.
wisdom and understanding the scriptures. All right. Well, I didn't let y'all say much today. Sorry about that. But we are ending on time. Uh, so, uh, let, any any closing comments about the interpretation of scripture? pray then. <clears throat> Dear God, thank you for this uh, time you've given us this morning uh, in your word and to think about your word and talk about how we can understand what you meant uh, as you spoke it. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would enable us uh, to get that right, that we would use everything that you've given us all the tools at our disposal to understand your word correctly. Lord, we pray that you would give us the um, desire and the energy uh, to do the work it takes for us to understand your word. Lord, we just thank you for giving it to us and for giving us this solid, permanent reference point to, to go by, Lord, to understand you and to believe in you and to obey you. Uh, Lord, we just thank you so much for that, uh, that huge gift. And we pray that uh, in worship service, uh, we would glorify you with our worship and Lord, also uh, you would grant us understanding of your word as we study it together in there as well. And I pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.